Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So glad to see you here tonight. And tonight, I want to finish up what I began this morning talking about the withdrawal of ourselves from the impenitent members of the church. This is a congregation where we've been practicing this many years. That doesn't mean that that we have a withdrawal from someone every year, thank God. But it does mean that sometimes we do. Sometimes it becomes necessary, and we don't hesitate to do that when it is that way. I believe that the withdrawal of fellowship, because it's so strongly taught in Scripture, is a wonderful factor in binding us together because we share the same objectives. We share the same goals. I think it also makes us more content as Christians because I know it does for me. I I serve under an eldership, and I know that if I take some wrong turns in my life that They're going to come see me. I've been in a lot of elders meetings with these brothers. And the elders meetings are, by and large, made up of talking about Christians, people in their lives. And what can we do to help them? And who needs more help? And who needs some attention in this way or that? It's the way it's supposed to be in shepherding the flock. And sometimes it's about... Discipline, even though it's not about necessarily the withdrawal of fellowship. Sometimes it's about discipline in one way or another to try to help people to be what God wants them, want them to be. And I tell you, I think it gives us more security. I think it, I think it develops a cohesiveness in the church. Anyway, what I decided to do tonight is to do some Q&A on this subject. This afternoon or this morning I received, I guess there's six or seven more questions than what I already had, and so I'm glad about that. And some of them for tonight came in, a, in an email to me from Canada, and so we have some Canadian Christians visiting with, with us tonight. I have ten. Let's go. Number one, how should I treat someone who has been withdrawn from? The specifics are found in three or four different passages. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, with such a one, know not to eat. Don't keep company with him. Now, I take that to mean social interaction, that whereas before this, we might do things together, we might go fishing together, might go camping, might go play some golf together, might meet for lunch somewhere. Social interaction is stopped. With such a one, know not to eat. Now, why would that matter if not just for the purpose of Eliminating social interaction. Now that hurts. Now that, that's going to be painful. Romans sixteen seventeen says, avoid them. Second Thessalonians three fifteen says, don't treat him as an enemy, but exhort him as a brother. He's still my brother. 
I still love him and care about him, even though he's been withdrawn from. So he feels, if this is done in the ideal way, that he feels this pulling back from the Christians, and he understands what it's for. All right, here's number two. It's a very interesting question. Should we actively pray for those that have been disfellowshipped in our public prayers at church, similar to how we pray for the sick? Now, your first reaction might be, well, sure we should. Hmm. I believe the answer is no. Here's um, 1 John 5 and 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. What's the sin unto death? What's the sin for which we're not to pray? Well, now bear in mind, that's 1 John five sixteen. Turn a couple of pages over to 1 John 1 and verse 8, and you're familiar with this one. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from, ready for this, all unrighteousness. So what's left after that? The answer is none. I mean, you, you, so Christians are willing to confess their sins and he'll forgive those sins. And yet there's a sin unto death and don't pray for that. What, what would that be? And the answer is, logically, it would be a sin of which a man was unwilling to, to confess. He won't repent of that. Well, that's the very nature of, of the withdrawal of ourselves from such a brother. Is that we, we've tried everything we can think of to try to bring him back, and he won't come back. He's dug in his, in his heels. And the fact is that that's the sin. That is a sin for which we should not pray. And I would make this suggestion. So I'm... I don't think that's calloused. It is, it is that he's made this choice and he's sticking with it. And what are you going to say in that prayer? And I think you can pray a prayer for you and me. I often pray for such people, often do in this way, that if there's anybody on this planet that this man would listen to, that that person would get to him and communicate to him the will of God. If there's anybody he would listen to, get that person to him. I believe that would be a right prayer to pray. Number three, how long should we wait before pulling away our fellowship from a brother or sister living in impenitence? How long should we wait? That's an interesting thing about that is in all these discussions in Scripture, you don't have one that says... You need to make it 30 days. Could have, but didn't. You can imagine, of course, why. You do have Revelation 2 and 21 about Jezebel, and I gave her space to repent, and she would not. That's very interesting. He didn't say how long, but there was a space. And I believe the answer, the reason why that we don't have a particular time listed is because cases are different, people are different. How long has this person been a Christian? You think that has a bearing on this? What is the emotional state of the person that we're talking about here? What is the background of this person? What is the present circumstance of this person? Not to excuse sin, but it may have a bearing on how quickly you want to do this. I, I had an elder under whom I served years ago in Virginia. And after I had left there, by and by, he, he found another woman and pursued her and divorced his sweet, good wife. And took up with this woman. And the elders, the other elders, and I'm not sure if he was serving at that time or not, but the, at least the ones with whom he had served went to see him. And the answer was, 
I know what you're doing. I know what you're about here. Of course he did. He had participated in it before. A number of times. He had been part of this procedure. And now he was the object of the procedure. Now, I'm, not, I'm not interested. Do what you have to do. Now, how long do you think we should wait about that one? And the answer was not very long. Uh, it's first of all because there isn't anything you could tell him that he doesn't already know. Nothing. And besides that, his influence was great. When you combine those two things, there's little point in waiting and there's a great point in moving on and that's what happened. So the point is, in answer to the question, how long should we wait? There can be a number of factors and, and wise men in the eldership should make that decision. Number four, when family members are living in sin, do you, quote, not even eat with them or spend time and try to influence them to change their ways or does it depend on the situation? With reference to this subject about withdrawing our fellowship, the Bible doesn't give an explicit statement about this, about what about a man's family? Uh, what about a woman's family? I would make this argument that that you can't pit one scripture, one command against another. And so if you already have a command in place in that relationship, the fact that he's withdrawn from doesn't pull away or take away that command. For example, what if, what if there's a 17-year-old boy and he is living, of course, at home and his father is withdrawn from? Does he still live at home? He does. And is he still to honor his father and mother? He is. Is he still under, subjugated to the leadership of his father? The answer is that he is. And so I would say that was a mitigating factor. Suppose it's, it's a woman and her, her aged mother is, has at one time been withdrawn from, but now her mother has serious issues and needs this daughter who's a Christian to care for her in every part of life, including eating with her. Shouldn't she do that? And I would say certainly she, sh- she should. First Timothy chapter 5, that family ought to take care of that woman, and she's part of that. And so I would say that would be mitigating. What about a husband or wife? What if a woman is withdrawn from and her husband's a Christian? Should he still be her husband in the fullest sense of the term? And the answer is, of course, yes. And Ephesians 5 would still be applicable. As you go down the, the, the relationships, the possible familial relationships, though, of course, that, that gets less and less to, to where you would say it cannot have a bearing. You take a couple of guys who are cousins, and one of them is withdrawn from. I don't see any biblical reasons why you would be able to say, well, because they're kin, then this cousin doesn't have any obligation to fulfill the withdrawal or to practice the withdrawal. Of course he should. And what about, and the hard one is, parents with grown children. That's really a tough one. I'm, I'm going to leave that to your own conscience. But I would say this. I, I knew an elder, I say I know him, he, he called me. I don't know that I, I don't remember meeting him, but he called one night. And he had, he had participated in the eldership in announcing withdrawal from his son. And, and this was the question. What about this? And he said, I just can't see how... That I can teach. The, the young man was grown on his own, had his own place, and seemed like it had to do with a woman. He was married, but he cheated, and etc. Anyway, the, the elders decided to lead the church in withdrawal, and they did that. 
And so we talked for a while. And one of the things that they did in their family, they have an extended family living in one little community there. And for a long time, every Lord's Day, every Sunday after worship, they'd meet together at Mama's house. They'd have lunch together. So it was a big table. All of them gathered around siblings and spouses and children and that he'd been withdrawn from. And so I said, you, why don't you use it? You need to use that closeness to help bring him back. And so the decision was that on a given Sunday, he, he wouldn't be invited and they would leave his chair empty and they would take a picture of the family in that empty chair where he usually sits take a picture of the family, and send it to him with letters from the different family members to say, we love you, brother. We really want you back. Won't you, won't you make things right so that we can be fully in fellowship again? Is that a bad thing to do? No, I think that was a good thing. In that case, what they needed to do was use, and that's what we should do, use everything within our power to try to bring them back. Number next. What if a person withdraws himself? This was asked by more than one person, and, and it goes like this, just ask a different way. If a person withdraws himself from the church and no longer desires to be part of it, unlike the man in 1 Corinthians 5, how can withdrawing from him work? If the man has already gone from the church, is he in a position to leaven the lump, as is the example in 1 Corinthians 5? That's a great question, but it all depends on, on this question. I mean, any, any member of the church, of a, of a congregation like West Huntsville, for example, at any time could say, I think that I, for whatever reason, it would be better for me to be a member of a different congregation. And, and there's, you know, there's no reason why a person couldn't do that. I hope you won't. We really like to have you here. But what if, what if the person's not under any kind of discipline? disciplinary action. It's nothing about that. It's nothing about sin at all. It's just maybe it's geographical or maybe it's family members at the different congregations so they choose to do that. There's no repercussion from that. The answer is that we'd all wish them well and that would be all. But but change the scenario and what if what it really was was that this person's living in some abject sin, knows it, has no intention of leaving that sin and the elders begin visiting that person, and he sees the writing on the wall. I know what they're, where they're leading with this, but I'm not going to leave that sin. I'm going to stay with it. I'm not about to repent. And he can tell. So what he does is to thwart the, the disciplinary action. What he does is to go to a different congregation. He hasn't fixed it. He hasn't fixed it. As a matter of fact, what he's going to have to do, even if he goes over there, he's going to have to eventually sometime come back and make things right with the church he left. And what about the leaven? And I would say even though he's left, he may not have influence in the future, but he's left a bad influence. And that needs to be cleaned up. So I would, I would still encourage the elders to follow through with that. Because remember in 1 Corinthians 5, the two purposes for which we practice this that are given by the Apostle Paul. And the first one is to try to save his soul. And the second one is try to keep the church pure. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so... He's had influence, and it's brought about this point at which he's about to be disciplined. He's about to be withdrawn from. He's left behind or is leaving behind a bad influence. I would add one more thing about this. Some elders have never 
led the church in this practice. They never have, despite the fact that the Bible is so plain about it. And one of the main lines of reasoning that we hear is, well, we couldn't withdraw from him. He withdrew himself. If simply saying, I withdraw myself, was enough to thwart the action, if saying, you can't withdraw from me, I withdraw myself, if that would change this whole picture, then no one would ever be withdrawn from. Who would go through it if you had magic words that you could say and that it all stopped? What about, what about this man in 1 Corinthians 5 we talked about this morning? Don't you suppose if that had been a tool that he could use to thwart it all, that he would have just said, meh, meh, hold on, I withdraw myself, and then it stops. The fact of the matter is, there are various different actions a man may take in the process of leaving the Lord and going back to the world. And one of them may be saying to the church, I just withdraw myself. Wait a minute, all he's doing is leaving the Lord. It's just another step in leaving the Lord. What's our responsibility if we love him? And the answer is to carry this out, to show him that we love him, and to show him what he's doing is very, very serious. Number six, should the eldership of the congregation that withdraws from this brother or sister give warning to other congregations? Asked by a different person, it goes this way. Is disfellowshipping worldwide? As in, if you know that members have been disfellowshipped in another congregation, but there's an area-wide or larger gathering of members, how do you manage if the disfellowship member or members attend? Not everyone there would know of their discipline and thus would wonder why you're, dis, you're disfellowshipping. Do you tell them? I like the way that that's worded because it is so confusing. Because it illustrates the point. It helps to answer the question. The Bible does not require broadcasting this to all the other churches in a wholesale way. I doubt the prudence of publishing this to churches that have no interest in this matter. It might be and probably would be, however, prudent for the church to inform the congregation. If a man is withdrawn from and he pulls away and goes to a different congregation, wouldn't it be prudent and and practicing the golden rule for the church here to inform in some way, not, not in an egregious way, but in some way to say, just so you know, now that he's going to be under this eldership, just so you know, here's where we were about this. We, we acknowledge the fact that the church is autonomous, and so we're handing this over, but we just want you to know this is how this brother or this sister left us, and now that, that would be your business. Your business. It seems to me like that would be the golden rule. I, I can imagine that our elders here would greatly appreciate that information. Now, I'm sure they would do their own research about that and figure that out and do what they would think was best about that. But, but my, my, wouldn't they be glad to know it? Because that issue could eventually be a threat to the church to which the man has come. Number seven. Were there elders in Corinth to do this disfellowshipping? If not, how do we do this today in congregations that do not have elders? What do you do if the men of the congregation do not all agree to follow the scriptures regarding this, or if not all the members follow through? Well, it's a great question. And first of all, I suspect there were elders in Corinth. You think about Paul and the teaching he did. Paul and Barnabas, Acts 14, they ordained elders in those Gentile churches. 
Paul spent a, a year and a half, maybe more, in Corinth teaching the new converts. Wouldn't he work to ordain elders? In, first, in Titus 1 and verse 5, he made sure that elders were ordained in Crete, Acts 20.17, in Ephesus. Why not Corinth? I, I don't know any reason why, even though it's not explicitly stated, that Paul didn't make sure that there were elders ordained there. The elders of a congregation lead in the withdrawal of others. But they do not do it alone. And in fact, what they do is just lead it. Can you imagine the elders getting up and announcing, and that's what they should do, getting up and announcing that we're withdrawing our fellowship from this brother or sister. We love him. We love her so much. But he's gone into this sin and nothing we have done, nothing we have done has turned his head. Can you imagine, though, if if the members don't follow through, it would be futile. It would be a useless exercise. There's nothing nothing beneficial about that. You're surely not going to do any good. And all they do, all the elders do, is to say, as the shepherds, we've done all that we can to restore this one, and it's not effective. And so we need now as a congregation to practice this. And every member, every member must practice this. Otherwise, you're going against the the teachings of the New Testament and trying to thwart what God has set up to to try to restore these people. Uh, Now, what about, what about not having elders? And that's, that's really a good question. I, I would say that you would get a great example about why having elders in our congregations is an advantage over just having men's business meetings and not having elders. This is a tremendous example because you can just imagine how difficult it's going to be to carry this out. And yet I don't know any passage that would indicate that if, an, if a church does not have elders, they're free from this, this uh, command. Of course they've got to do this. Of course it's commanded of them. But it becomes terribly difficult. It might be, parenthetically, appropriate for the preacher, if asked by the men of the church... To lead this. He doesn't have any more authority, but you do remember that in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul set Titus up to ordain the elders in Crete. He was the minister there, the preacher there. And it just seemed logical by the Holy Spirit, of course, to have the preacher to carry this out. Well, perhaps it would be appropriate in that vein for him to be the one who would lead the church in this regard. Just a thought. Eight. What do you do if you are in a congregation in which the elders will not practice the withdrawal of fellowship. I would say do not cause division. Don't attempt to overturn the eldership. God hates a person that sows discord among brethren. Bible class teachers should teach about it. Not every week. But from time to time, it ought to be in Bible classes. It ought to be mentioned. Here's what the Bible says. And to read those passages, preachers ought to preach about it. And I declare to you that we need to be raising our boys up to be godly elders, not merely after the pattern that they've seen in the elders where they grew up, but more so after the pattern of the New Testament. That is not to to discourage any current eldership. And, And praise God, we've got great elders in this church, and we can point our boys to look at their examples, and yet still... The pinnacle of example has to be the New Testament principles, and this kind of thing we're talking about tonight is illustrative of that fact. Number nine, do individuals withdraw 
after following the parts of Matthew 18 that they can follow, to ask this a different way. Is it all right if I'm in a congregation and the, the elders won't lead in withdrawal or we don't have elders and the, the church can't ever come together enough to do this, would it be all right individually for us to withdraw? Well, I would say a couple of things about that. In, in the first place, when you have 1 Corinthians 5 or 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6, passages like these, it's in the context of the whole church doing this together. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul explicitly says, when you come together, then here's what I want you to do. So it was a congregational effort. I I really don't see the benefit of individuals withdrawing from one another. I don't see that. Now, I think that there is surely a natural withdrawal that occurs when sin comes between Christians. I think there's going to be, I don't know, maybe, maybe you've been very, been very close to a brother or a sister and, and now some overt, perpetual, impenitent sin enters into his or her life and you, you can't do enough encouraging to, to change their course. And I think that what's going to happen is a, a natural pulling away. And the reason is that you have less and less in common. Sin makes it that way. So I think that there's a natural progression of withdrawal that happens. But I do not believe that it would be right to take a passage like 1 Corinthians 5 and, and apply it to individuals withdrawing from individuals. It doesn't, it doesn't work. And when you get to 2 Thessalonians, bear in mind that was written to the entire church of the Thessalonians, not just individuals. And so that's what I would encourage. And for individuals to practice this as it was given to the churches, would invite great confusion and, I'm confident, division. Here's number 10, the last one. This is so important, so important. And some of you have heard me say it. Some of you have not. But I want you to take it to your heart. What must a person do now that he has been withdrawn from in order to be right with God again? How do you make it right when you've been withdrawn from I If you love the Lord, to be withdrawn from would be a terrible shock to your psyche. It would be profound. I I don't, I mean, I I don't know how you'd ever get to that point because if, if members and the elders come and they sit down with you about some issue going on in your life that, that's sinful, how do you keep going? How would you keep going in that? How could you get your own heart's permission to perpetuate that, to continue. And I don't know. I don't know. But if if you were were told that that we're going to have to withdraw our fellowship from you, it it would just, it would tear me all up. I, I couldn't do it. I could not do it. But suppose a person does. And now that it's finished, he or she sits in the evening and thinks about life and thinks about what's happened, and thinks about the Lord, and thinks about eternity in heaven or hell, and that I am not going to live forever. And when I die, this matter will be sealed. What about that? And, and suppose the person wants to return. Now, here's the important thing to hear, is that there isn't one additional thing that this person must do to be right that wasn't true before he was withdrawn from. Not one thing. He needs to do exactly what he needed to do before he was withdrawn from. 
the withdrawal of fellowship did not make him damned. It does not damn him. And we don't have the authority to damn anybody. Right? The only thing that withdrawal did, it didn't even make him more damned. The only thing that it did was to, to declare out loud what was already true. We love him, but he's lost. He's lost, and we've got to try to bring him back. And the final straw is that we must withdraw our fellowship from him, not because we choose to do it, but because that's what the Bible says we must do, and the church belongs to Jesus. He died for it. Not one additional thing. Not more damned. All that it does is to declare what is true. If we fail to do that, the implication of that is that this is what Christianity is like. In this sin, perpetuating impenitent sin, living this way, this is, this is acceptable in Christianity when that's a lie. It's a lie. We're not doing him any favors. Jesus won't accept that. The answer is that what he needs to do is to confess that sin and make it right. And then 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 5 and following, says that what we're going to do is to embrace that man or that woman immediately. We don't want them to be overcome with much sorrow. What we want is for repentance to be had and straighten it up and then walk right and just just walk right again. Come back to where you have hope and security and the family of God who loves you so very much. You've been kind to listen. I hope some things tonight to think about. If you have any more questions about this that I can help with, I'll be happy to talk it over with you. Is there somebody here tonight who needs to obey the gospel? We always try at our assemblies to ask. Is there somebody here who's been studying the word of God? You want to become a Christian, repent of your sins and confess Jesus and be immersed in water? We'd be so happy to help you do that. And if you need the prayers of Christians tonight, if you need something, you need to straighten something up with the Christians, now would just be such a good time to do that. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.